All right. Well, good morning, Docs Church. Guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Guys, it's, uh, it's great to be together. If you are new, we haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Rob. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's great to have you with us today here at, at Doxa. But guys, here's where we're at this morning, okay? And really just kind of going into the next few months. I know a couple of you, you know, our propensity if you're new is just to kind of go through books of the Bible. And I know that some of you type A people have already approached me and was like, hey, what are we doing next? What are we doing next? And so for all you type A need to be in control, here you go, okay? So today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna begin a six-week teaching series that we have titled Six Marks, where we're really just kind of considering the portrait of a disciple of Jesus and kind of just asking the question, man, what does a Christian really look like? We're gonna be wrestling with that starting with today, and then after that, we're gonna spend about 28 weeks going through the Gospel of Mark, where we're gonna be examining the life of the man who is God. But the prime goal over the next eight months, guys, is this. It's really just to reinforce the primacy of Jesus in our life and in our world and remind ourselves of the good news of Jesus's gospel, which is really just good news for all people. And to kind of solidify and remind ourselves how Jesus really does change everything. And as we consider all this, okay, the goal is kind of really just to to cut through all the noise. It's to cut through all the clutter that can and so oftentimes does surround the church and surround the Christian life. That so many times when we think about the Christian life, it's, it's way more things that are outside the Bible than just making it about the most important thing. And we're going to work to kind of cut out all that clutter and all that noise. And so go ahead and grab your Bible and find yourself to the place in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start considering these six marks, okay? And I'm going to introduce this series by by sharing a story from one of the greatest men in the history of Wisconsin, Vince Lombardi. Amen? Can I get a go, pack, go? Guys, that was weak. No wonder why they're doing so bad, right? It's not all the mushrooms that Aaron Rodgers is doing. It's the fans. Come on. All right? But you know, like, if you don't know who Vince Lombardi is, first, shame on you. Second, there's grace for that, okay? Jesus loves you, but Vince Lombardi was the the head coach of the Green Bay Packers during the 1960s where he led the team to three straight and five total NFL championships in 10 years, including the first two Super Bowls. But in July of, of 1961, all right, Vince Lombardi kicked off the first day of training camp for the 38 players on the Green Bay Packers team. And coming into this training camp, they were kind of coming off a, a bad, not a bad season, a, a uh, heartbreaking season as they lost in the, last four, in the fourth quarter to the Philadelphia Eagles to lose the NFL championship. But when the players came into training camp, they really just expected to immediately begin where they left off the season before, kind of fine-tuning their game, learning new strategies to win the championship in the coming season. But when they sat down for that first day of training, Lombardi just stood in front of the team. And he held up a football in his hand, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. It's become one of the most famous quotes in sports. He stood up in front of this team, and this, if you just think about the irony in this, okay, he was talking to a group of professionals who had given their life to perfecting the game of football, but he stands up in front of all of them, and he says, gentlemen, this is a football, and then what he did is he had them turn to page one in their playbook, and they began to learn the fundamentals of the game, 
They started with blocking and tackling and throwing and catching, all of that. And this was clearly not what the players were expecting, but this hyper-focus on the fundamentals allowed them to know exactly what they were doing as a team, and it allowed them to excel as a team to accomplish their goal. And Docs, I share that story to say this. This is what Six Marks is all about. I'm going to say, Doxa, this is a disciple. We're going to look at the different marks of a disciple over the next six weeks, these fundamental marks of a person who is following Jesus. And when we talk about a disciple, we're talking about someone who is a follower or a learner. And so really, we're talking about the six marks of a Christian, six marks that overflow from the life of someone who has experienced and received and accepted the love of God through Jesus Christ and is seeking to live their lives for him and like him, following in his words, his works, and his ways. And to be sure, when we think about the Christian life, right, there's so many things that we could talk about, but these six, they're foundational. And here's what I've been praying happens as we go through these six marks. All right, three things. Number one, that our time in this series will give us clarity on what it looks like to actually follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. I mean, what we're asking is practically what does it look like from a biblical perspective to follow Jesus today? And I know for some of you that you've been Christians for a really long time, you might be thinking like, this is like elementary, this is 101, like I need the 201 stuff, I need deeper theology. But I mean, how would you describe that to someone who knows nothing about Jesus, nothing about the Bible? Like to be a Christian, like does that mean that I have to have a certain like type, like political alignment? Like, does that mean that I can't, like, drink and cuss anymore? Does that mean, like, I have to homeschool my kids? Does that mean, like, I'm all of a sudden perfect now? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What are these foundational marks? These six marks are going to be so helpful for us in knowing how we live like and for Jesus who created us and saved us. And for those of you who are not Christians, I love that you're here because God has good news for you today life-changing news for you. But as you hear these marks, all right, what you're gonna do is you're gonna learn about what we're aiming for, all right? Your job is not to like start with these marks necessarily. Your job is to come to Jesus who loves you and has lived for you and died for you and saved you. But you're gonna hear what we're shooting for as a church family. And we're not gonna live this out perfectly because we're all like kind of like recovering hypocrites, but this is what we're aiming at. Now, secondarily, I'm praying that these six marks will provide a way for us to really just evaluate our life with God. I don't know about you, but like when someone asks me that like big, vague, overly Christian-y question like, how's your walk with God? Do people ask you that? Like I I never know how to really answer that. Like, Like when someone asks you that question, like what categories should I consider, right? It's like I haven't killed anybody. I haven't like cussed out my neighbor. I didn't get hammered and streaked through my neighborhood. So I guess I'm doing pretty good. Like my walk with Jesus is strong to quite strong. Like how how do you, how do you evaluate it? These six marks are going to give us a framework to think about living a life for God. As we see all of these marks in the life of Jesus and throughout the scriptures. And hear this, this is so important guys. These marks They describe what spiritual maturity looks like in our lives. That spiritual maturity may be very different than what you think right now. And then third, guys, I'm praying that this teaching series will give us a path to becoming who God has created us to be, ultimately like Jesus, so we can actually exist for the glory of God and the good of our city and the world. 
that if we are people marked by these six things, this will move us from playing church to actually living like Jesus. Because our goal here at Doxa is not to put on a bunch of events and, and grow attendance, but it's to be a greenhouse that grows disciples who lives out these, these marks and adds value and help and hope and joy and peace and salvation to the people all around us who God loves, just like our Jesus. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna consider the mark of being a worshiper, all right? And this is what Luke chapter 10, this part that we're gonna look at is all about. We're gonna begin in verse 38, but to give you a little bit of context, okay? Prior to this section in Luke, starting in chapter eight, we're, we're given six miracles of Jesus, that he calms a storm, he casts out demons, he heals people, he brings a little girl back to life, he feeds thousands of people with like a kid's lunchable. He's doing miraculous things, just a bunch of amazing things. And Jesus, he's traveling from place to place, he's doing all these amazing things, and then he comes to the house of these two women that we're gonna meet today. Their name is Mary and Martha. And it seems that Jesus is, is close friends with these women as throughout the gospel he stays or visits them at least four different times. But upon his visit to their house is where we're going to pick up Luke's account. So Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Here's what we see. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So this is where we're at. And there's a lot we can take from this passage, but ultimately what we're seeing is that to be a disciple is primarily to be a worshiper. And when we talk about being a worshiper, here's what this means, okay? To worship literally means to just ascribe value or worth to something. All right, so to, to worship is to hold something in the highest esteem or the highest regard in your life. And the truth is, we are all worshipers. And I know not everybody in this room is following Jesus and considering themselves a Christian. Hear me on this. The issue is not like, am I a worshiper or not? But what is it that I worship? Because all humanity, we all worship something. We all ascribe value to something. We all build our life around something. But the question is, what is it that I actually am worshiping? And a good way to discover this is to ask a few questions. I'm gonna put it up here on the screen. This would be a great thing to talk about in your connection group this week. But we ask, like, what is it that I spend most of my time thinking about? This is a good indicator of like what it is that sits on the throne of your heart. We can ask, what is it that drives the way that I live? Like, what is that thing in my life that makes, helps me make decisions on what to do and how to think and how to speak? What is it that most of my time and my money goes towards? I mean, you want to see the thing that you really love, pull out your checkbook, look at your bank statement, and what you spend your money on oftentimes is the thing that you value the most. What is it that if you lost it, that your life would just crumble and you feel like you couldn't go on? Guys, answering these questions will help to unveil what it is you worship, and the truth that you need to know is that what you worship drives your life. And so as we think about the Christian life and the mark of a disciple being a worshiper, we're talking about a person who knows God 
through faith in Jesus and values him and treasures him, enjoys him, is satisfied by him more than anything in life. And out of that inner worship overflows outer worship, which is seen in acts of praise from our lips and acts of love from our lives towards the people around us whom God loves. And if you look back to verse 42, this is what Jesus says life is all about, the one necessary thing, the good portion. So I wanna explain this by looking at these two women in this account, okay? And we're gonna start with Martha. But if you look back, what do we see about Martha? Pretty obvious, right? She's, she's really busy, she's stressed out, she's got a lot going on, she's overwhelmed, kind of freaking out a little bit, but to understand why, we, what we need to do is we need to kind of get into her mind and discover what she was actually thinking. And while we can't completely do this, I think we can come close, okay? So we're gonna try and put ourselves in the mind of a woman in the days of Jesus, okay? And men, I know you're thinking, I can't even understand women today. Easy, it's okay, we can do this, okay? But in those days, in Jewish society, a woman was judged upon and given honor based on how well they could manage their home. All right, that their value was given to them based on what they did, not who they were. It was a very religious outlook based on doing. Their identity came from what they did. And so since culturally service was a woman's highest calling, Martha was just working hard. She was doing good. And you notice, if you look back, she starts complaining about Mary, her sister, because in the midst of Martha kind of running around, working, Mary's just kind of in the beanbag chair with Jesus, just kind of lounging around, hanging out. And quite honestly, guys, for the Marthas in this room, any Marthas here? Oh, wow, we got a bunch of Marys. This is a great church, right? We're going to have to get to work at some point. But for the Marthas in the room, her complaint, like, seems legit, right? Like, Mary's just laying around not doing anything, and the Marthas get frustrated, because if you're more like Martha, you're kind of just a doer. Marys tend to be more contemplative, right? And just sit in their prayer closet and just read their Bible and they're good. Marthas just wanna go out and do something, right? I'm a Martha, I resonate more with, with Martha. But Martha just wanted to get up, do something, and she was the matron of the house, she was in charge, and here comes Jesus. This really special and important man to her who she wanted to serve, she wanted to provide a good time for, She's working really hard. There's likely a lot more people coming in with Jesus. And so she's just making sure that all of her guests have what they need. And in doing so, if you look back to verse 40, what does it say? It says that she was distracted. Now, it's so interesting when you read this passage in the original Greek, because the words here have such a greater meaning and really highlight the point that we're to take here. It really comes alive. See, when this passage says that Martha was distracted, it's the Greek word perispo, all right? And it's not like distracted like, oh, squirrel, right? But literally, perispo literally means to be dragged away, to almost be like violently pulled away from something. And so all of the busyness that Martha found herself with in preparing for Jesus literally pulled her away. It dragged her away from Jesus that she was dragged away by all the things in her life. Now, pause on Martha, and I just want you to think about your life. What are the things that tend to drag us away from Jesus? What are the things that drag you away from Jesus? And the list is long, right? But if you think about the, that list, sin, busyness, our work, our school, our relationships, our hobbies, our, de our deadlines, our passions, our aspirations in life, 
Guys, and if we're honest with our lives, this happens to us all the time. Like one of the things that we all have in common is that we're all sinful by nature. No one is perfect, there's one, his name is Jesus, and that's why I'm talking about him for the next 30 minutes. But the rest of us, we have sin in our life. And sin just distances us from God. But in the beginning, God created everything to be perfect. It was, it was united with him, humanity, but sin came in, and sin is just anything that God is not, and it separated humanity from God. And so sin in our life will dr- literally drag us away from Jesus because it pulls us and it separates us. And this is why the gospel is so important, because if this separation goes on forever, this is where we get into the terrible conscious reality of hell. But God, out of his love, steps into human history. Jesus dies on a cross. He raises from the dead. And upon faith, he takes that sin that separates and gives us his righteousness and brings us back. But sin actually separates us from God. And I want to tell you that I I mention this because I know that there's some of you here that you feel distant from God. And maybe it's frustrating to you. And maybe you don't understand why. I'd encourage you to do what the end of Psalm 139 says. Search me, O God. Show me my ways. And reveal to me anything grievous in me. Because sin in our lives will separate us from God. For others, it's maybe your work. Like we live in a, in a Martha world, guys. Like we value productivity. We value going. We value hard work. And work can quickly become an identity where our whole lives become focused on. And our job and our promotion and our money sits on the throne of our heart and it just takes over. And soon enough, we feel distant from God because we don't have time to do anything else. And so I just want you to ask yourself, are there things in your life right now that are distracting you from Jesus? That are pulling you away from Jesus? And what's interesting If you look at this passage, they don't even really have to be bad things. They don't have to be sin, right? I mean, Martha was was serving. She was doing good, and she was pulled away from Jesus because she lost perspective on the one thing that was truly important, Jesus himself. And I think it's obvious that things like sin, like they stand in opposition to God, they pull us away from Jesus, but how oftentimes do you consider the good things in your life that can do the same thing? Have you thought about that? I've seen this in my life. I'll give you two examples, okay? The first one was when I was dating my now wife. All right, I'd just become a Christian, and I found this girl, and I was like, oh my gosh, I was enthralled by her. She was godly, she was funny. She thinks she's funny. I laugh at her more than I laugh with her, but beautiful, she could sing. And I remember just like being just like enthralled with this woman. And it was like this gift that I felt like God was giving me, but this gift eventually kind of became a God, where a lot of my time, a lot of my effort, a lot of my attention was like distracted and went to Lisa over God. And it wasn't like I was intentionally saying, you are now my God. But it was a distraction, a really good thing that became an ultimate thing. And in my relationship with Jesus suffered. Lisa was elevated above God. The second example happened right after I became a Christian as well. Started serving in the church that I was at. And a little bit about me, if you don't know this, guys, I I love to work, all right? One of my favorite words in the English language is grit, okay? I just love grit, getting it done, going to work, driving, all that stuff. 
All right, this is why I love Martha so much, and I don't like how she gets treated by a lot of people, right? Because the way it goes is like, Martha is bad, Mary is good, so be like Mary and not like Martha. But the reality is this guy's boo, right? (laughs) Martha, easy, right? (laughs) But the reality is, Martha is not bad. She loves Jesus. She was concerned for Jesus. She invited Jesus into her home and she serves him. And so Martha isn't at all bad. She just has her priorities mixed up. And that's why Jesus comes to her tenderly. Like he says, Martha, Martha, you got your priorities messed up. But my propensity, especially early on as a Christian, is to be like Martha. I tend to always be in motion, doing things, have my hands in a lot of different activities. And when I met Jesus as a senior in college, I wanted to do so much for God and help as many people as I could. And in my busyness, just literally got dragged away from him because of my busyness, that I was much like Martha. I was so busy trying to teach the Bible and disciple men and to help people involved in so many different types of ministry that I lost sight of God in the midst of this and being with him and spending time with him in his word. And soon enough, I was with tons of people, but I was never with Jesus. I was never reading my Bible. I was never in prayer. And I found myself just dried up. And so I was doing a lot of stuff, but it really wasn't effective and it really wasn't with God. It wasn't for God. Can you relate to any of that? And maybe it's not ministry for you, but maybe it's your family. You parents, Maybe you just want to be such a good parent. You don't want to be like your mom and dad. And so what you do is you pour everything you can and all that you are into your kids. And there's no time left for anything else. Between all the games and the practices and the the activities and the vacations, there's no time left for gospel community, there's no time left for prayer, there's no time left for reading your Bible, there's no time left for going to church and being with God's people and worshiping. And that good thing of being a good parent literally drags you away and you feel distant, not super excited about God. Or maybe it's your job, it's your hobbies, it's your passion project, all good things, but those things eventually kind of take the place of God in your life And your existence just kind of begins to revolve around these different things where you effectively begin to worship those things instead of God. And again, those things are not bad things in and of themselves, but they become things that can drag us away. And here's what I want you to know. Guys, we live in a Martha world, and there will be always things in our lives that can keep us from having closeness and intimacy with God. And I think this is what led in part to why the author of Hebrews wrote what he did in chapter 12. It's going to come up here on the screen. Take a look at this. He says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And I know that there are some of you here today that you feel really distant from God. Maybe you even literally feel like dragged away from him and maybe it's sad to you, maybe it's frustrating to you, maybe you kind of like try and like not think about it and now you're feeling something because I'm bringing it up. But regardless of how you feel, I'll ask you this. This is applicable to every single one of us. What do you need to strip off that's keeping you from Jesus? What is it that you need to strip off that's keeping you from Jesus? There's things in all of our lives 
What is that? And that would be a great question for you to talk about at your connection group this week. What do you need to strip off? Because just think about it this way, okay? Like if you go watch a marathon, right? I've been, my wife ran a marathon. I watched it. I'm never going to run it. I don't understand marathons, why you just run for a long time. Don't understand. But if you go watch a marathon, right, and you get past the short shorts that the guys are wearing or whatever, you, don't, you, you see like they are wearing as little clothes as possible, Right? And you look at it and you're like, okay, that makes sense. They don't want anything to get in the way. But if you're watching all of the people lining up and they're just wearing their little singlets or whatever they're wearing, and then all of a sudden you see some guy with like a backpack on and like a wheelbarrow full of mulch go up to the starting line, right? You'd be like, bro, that doesn't make any, like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to run a marathon. You're like, you're going to lose. Like, there's no way. Like, it just wouldn't make sense. Guys, I think that if we step back and look at our lives as we follow Jesus, we would see stuff that does not make sense. We would see a wheelbarrow full of mulch. What is that in your life? Is it sin? Like maybe you're like desperately trying to follow Jesus, but you're just like addicted to pornography. It's this wheelbarrow full of mulch that is just getting in the way. It's slowing you down. It's tripping you up. Maybe it's your, just your work. Your priorities are so out of whack that the most important thing in your life is to climb the corporate ladder and you're putting your wife and your kid on the altar. Like what is that in your life that you need to strip off? This is what Jesus was saying to Martha, that her focus was off. I believe that Jesus is even saying that to us today. What are you focused on? You focused on him or something else because know this for sure, whatever we focus on, we drift towards. And we're never gonna drift towards God because sin is real in our lives and there's so many things that surround our lives that will fight for our worship. Just something for us to consider. Now, what about Mary? Mary was really quite the opposite of Martha. You look back, you see that she sat at the feet of Jesus She was listening to Jesus. She chose what Jesus called the one necessary thing, the good portion. And Mary was really just doing the proper thing for a disciple to do, that her primary focus was Jesus. She was just worshiping him. Like as you're seeing Mary here, she's just a worshiper. That while Martha was occupied with things, Mary was occupied with God. That she put off all the distractions and she refused to be pulled away and she sat at Jesus' feet, okay? In the Greek, the word is perikothesomai, meaning like to sit at Jesus' feet. And it doesn't mean to just sit down, but it means to literally like to come close, to draw near. It's the opposite of what Martha was doing. All right, Luke was very intentional with writing what he did. And Jesus saw what Mary was doing, drawing close, and he says, you're doing the right thing, you're doing the good thing, the better thing. And not only did she draw near and sit, but it also said that she listened to Jesus. In the Greek, it's the word akuo. Now, here is why I keep mentioning this Greek stuff, okay? It's not to highlight the fact that I studied languages in seminary and to make you think that I'm super smart or anything. But when you read this, guys, it's so incredible. The author uses, like, these verbs in the imperfect tense to signify an incomplete action, And so what this means is that Martha was not just distracted and pulled away from Jesus one time in this account, but she was perpetually distracted and pulled away. That she had a lifestyle that pulled her away from Jesus. That there were things that were so habitual in her that she was constantly distracted from the presence of Jesus. 
things that were just rooted in her life that made it really hard for her to come to Jesus because she was always distracted. And Mary not only drew near to Jesus and listened, but she consistently drew near and listened and was constantly thinking about what he was saying. And we get the picture of almost like Joshua 1, where even when Jesus was not physically present, that she was still drawing near. She was still listening as she was remembering his words. She was like meditating on his words. And so Mary continually drew close and listened to Jesus while Martha was continually working and distracted and pulled away. And Jesus goes on to share the punchline in verse 42. Look, that Mary has chosen the one necessary thing, the better thing, the good portion. Doc, so the big idea is this. I want you to write this down because this is something that's not gonna be intuitive for an American. Being is greater than doing. In the economy of God, being is greater than doing. That a life for God begins and is sustained by being and then overflows in doing. It's worship than work. And this is something that I have to continually remind myself of because I'm more like Martha. And being in America, I would say we're probably all more like that. But this is something that I pray would mark our church family. But here's my conclusion, all right? Not to the sermon, that's gonna be a while, but my conclusion to this point, okay, is that the point of the Bible here is Mary first, Martha second. Mary first, Martha second. Spend time with Jesus, then get stuff done. Worship like Mary, then work like Martha. Because if all Mary ever does is sit there and reads her Bible and prays and never does anything, she's got, she's got it completely wrong in a different way, all right? Like this would be like the guy who's like in his 27th year of seminary in Bible college, right? And it's like, bro, go do something. What are you doing? You've read the whole library. Go do something with your life. But if all she ever does was what Mar- Martha does, where she's just doing, 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 going, going, going. She's gonna end up distracted, anxious, troubled, pulled away from Jesus. And so the key is Mary first, Martha second. Worship, then work. Worship God before you work so that you can worship God in and through your work. And so Doxa Church, we want Mary's heart and we want Martha's hands. Amen? This is what we're shooting for, Mary's heart and Martha's hands. This is what we want. Because the truth is, there is a lot of gospel ministry to do in our city and throughout the world. A lot of people that God loves, that he is sending us out into the world to love alongside him, helping people. This needs to happen. There's work that needs to be done for the glory of God and the good of our city, but we need to worship before we work so we have something to give as we work. We want Mary's heart and Martha's hands. And see, when we don't get this, It just results in a misunderstanding of what a life with Jesus is all about. And here's what I mean, okay? I think many people, maybe even in this room, largely because of the culture that we live in, have this work and do mentality when it comes to understanding the Christian life. Maybe you think like, the Christian life is about me doing a bunch of things and not doing certain things and then doing other things more. I want you to know This is what we call religion. All right, religion is all about work, not necessarily about Jesus. 
And we can define religion as kind of just like confidence in the works of our flesh. And so what I want to do is to share some things with you to help you worship God for all that he is and how he loves and what he gives. Because here's the truth, Doxa. One of the things that we learn in this section of scripture by looking at Jesus' interaction with these women is that religion is all about work that we do. Grace is all about the work that Jesus has done. And your view of God and yourself and others will be completely shaped by how you see this. And by looking at these two women, we're seeing what religion and grace do. That religion, as seen in Martha, leads to us working and being very distracted from Jesus, pulled away from him. Grace, on the other hand, which is God's undeserved love, his unmerited favor for us as we see through Mary, leads to worship and it draws us to Jesus. It transforms us through Jesus and keeps us with Jesus. And so I want to spend the rest of our time looking at the difference between religion and grace. Because here's the reality as I see it. Religion is just disgusting. Paul talks about this in Philippians. Right? He talks about religion as like a steaming pile of dog dung. Religion is disgusting and quite frankly, it's our enemy. And here's why. The first thing. Take a look at this. Religion says, if I obey God then God will love me. All right, some of you have heard that. And some of you, sadly, you believe that. Some of us here, we think that if I stop sleeping around, if I stop drinking, if I stop doing this, if I stop doing that, and then I start doing other things, then God will love me. You have this if-then understanding of God's love. And as we consider the Mary and Martha story, I see Martha kind of wrestling with this, struggling with this, and this is what caused her to work rather than worship. She thought, man, if, if I just work for Jesus, then I'm gonna have more value. I'm gonna be more prominent. Maybe he'll love me more, he'll like me more. And that happens when we listen to religion. We will operate out of an understanding of like, if I obey God, then he will love me. But I want you to know, that is not it. Because here's what grace says. Grace says God does love you, period, amen? This is grace, that God has loved you in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, still totally jacked up, Jesus died for us. This is Romans 5.8. That the grace of the gospel of Jesus says God loves you, period. Someone here needs to hear that, God loves you. Religion says do to get love. That's the false gospel of religion, and it's so subtle, and it's so disgusting. All right, this would be the equivalent of after service. If you saw me pick up my kids from Doxa Kids, and you heard me bend down and say, hey, Lily and Titus, if you do this list of things, and you do it well, I will love you. But if you don't do it well, I won't love you, and I won't be your dad. If you heard me say that to my kids, I hope one of you men would come and just smack me across the face. I would be a terrible dad. Some of us view God like that. That's the false gospel of religion. And believing that will pull us away from Jesus. I know that some of you, you grew up in churches like that and around Christians like that. And that's why you haven't given your life to Jesus. Because you're like, this is crushing. I don't want any of that. I would need you to know that God is a good father who looks at his kids and he says, I love you. Even apart 
from what you do. And because he loves us, we love him, we worship him, and our affections lead to actions of obeying him. That's totally different from religion. The second thing religion says is this, is religion says the world is filled with two kinds of people, good people and bad people. I know some of you, you think that. And if you ask like a religious person, well, how do you know who the good people are? They'll look at you and be like, well, they're kind of like me, right? Religion says everyone who isn't like me is bad. But look what grace says. Grace says there are in fact two types of people, but they're repentant and unrepentant because all people are bad. This is Romans 3.23. It's not that God looks down and sees good people and bad people. God looks down and sees bad people in the Lord Jesus. We are all sinful by nature and choice. And so we are all bad. We are all in a place of sin. We are all unworthy and undeserving of God's grace. We all have sin and we all need a savior. And religious people, they don't get it. In fact, religious people are the ones that killed Jesus. And this should clue us in that something's wrong with religion. Because if you think about Jesus throughout the Gospels, we're going to see this in the Gospel of Mark as we study this, that Jesus goes to the sexually immoral, he goes to the thieves, he goes to the prostitutes, and he looks at these people with love in his eyes and he says, you are a sinner, you are bad. And they look at him and they say, totally, man, can you help me? Come over to my house, like help me work this out, like help me out, we're totally jacked up, we need help. But when Jesus goes to the religious leaders of the day and he says the exact same thing, what do they tell him? You have a demon. You're not like us. You broke our rules. You hang out with terrible people and now we're going to kill you. That's what religion is. Religion says that there are good people and bad people. Grace says that there are bad people who repent, meaning they turn to Jesus and they put their faith in him and find forgiveness of sin. And there are bad people who don't repent and they remain distant from God, marching towards hell, but the grace of God is always there for those people. And it was there for me for the first 20-some years of my life until I turned to Jesus. And it's true for you today. And then finally, the third thing that religion says is this. Religion says it's all about what you do. Grace says it's all about what has been done for you. Because do you remember the last thing that Jesus said in his last victory breath? It is finished. There is nothing more for you to do to come to God. The only thing for you to do is to put your faith in Jesus. See guys, it's not about you and what you do and what you've done. It's about what's been done for you. Religion says you are guaranteed heaven through good works that you do and by being a good person. And the truth is that yes, you are saved by good works. They're just not your good works. It's all about Jesus. This is the one thing that truly matters. This is what Mary knew and this is what led her to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to Jesus' words and just worship him. It's not about religion, it's about grace. I mean, does that like well up some worship in you when you're reminded of the gospel, Christian? It absolutely should. God is so good, he is so worthy, he is so great, he is so loving. And this is what a worshiper is all about. It's Jesus over everything. We need hearts like Mary and hands like Martha. Let's be a church of disciples who first and foremost love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything that we are, worshipers 
because of all that God has done through Jesus for our good. Now, before I end, I know that some of you might be thinking like, okay, that sounds great, be a worshiper, like, but how do I do that? Like, how do I, how do I stoke the fire and actually become a worshiper? I, I don't have the perfect answer, but I'll tell you what I do. I have a regular rhythm of looking in three directions. Every day, I look in three directions. I look backward, and I remind myself of what Jesus has done. As I look at the Bible and read the Bible, I'm looking back on the life of Jesus. And I remember Jesus looking at me as a broken, terrible, womanizing addict and saying, I love that one. And I remember, as I look back, Jesus going to the cross. And I remember, as he's hanging on the cross, he's doing it for me. And as I look back, I, re- I see him raised from the dead. As I look back, I, I think back to that time coming out of that jail cell where Jesus just became real to me. And he saved my life, and he changed my life, and he flipped the script. I look backwards and I remind myself of what he's done, and that causes me to worship. But then I look inward, and I say, man, what is God doing in my life right now? I have a regular habit of journaling, and I'm constantly writing. And every now and again, I sit back, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like I am who I am. I'm not amazing, but guys, you didn't know me like 10 years ago. Like I was just a hot mess. And I look and I'm like seeing what God is doing and how God is providing right now and how he's changing me. I'm not the man I want to be, but I'm not the man I once was. And that causes me to worship because he's causing me through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. And so I look backwards, it causes me to worship. I look inwards to see what God is doing. It causes me to worship. And then I look forward to the promises of God, of heaven, eternity, that day that he's gonna come and wipe away my tear, my last tear, and it's just gonna be joy forever. And I look forward to that day and it causes me to worship. This is how I stoke the fire of worship in my life. And I pray that we would be a church that would do that too. When we understand this, we will become worshipers and find what Jesus calls the good portion, the one necessary thing. It's Jesus over everything. And so we're gonna take communion to remind ourselves of that today, okay? And here's what we're gonna do. There's four stations in the corners of the room. During these last two songs, I want you just to sit, stand, kneel, whatever you gotta do, and I want you to look backwards. Spend a minute just looking backwards, worshiping Jesus for what he's done. Then spend some time looking inward thanking him for what he's doing, and then look forward and thank Jesus for what he promises is coming. And when you're ready during these last two songs, get up and take communion. Just walk over to the table, grab the bread where Jesus says, this is my body that has been broken for you. Take and remember, remember Jesus and worship. Dip it in the juice and remember his blood that was shed for you for the cleansing of your sin. Look back on that in worship. He's worthy. Jesus is great. Let's worship him. And if you're not a Christian, like you can just feel free to observe. Like this wouldn't make sense for you. But Jesus is here and he's 
living for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And so if you do want to come to Jesus and put your faith in him and say, I have sin, you're the answer, I'm with you, I'm following you, give me your righteousness, get up, take communion, and sing and celebrate like you've never had before. Let me pray. Jesus, we, we love you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that even as we sit here right now, that you would bring to mind the works of Jesus in the past. Would you help us to have a deeper understanding of, of the cross, of the empty tomb? Would you give us just a glimpse of what you're doing in our lives, how you're helping us, how you're rescuing us, how you're providing for us? And would you bring to mind the future that is coming that you've promised? And would you cause all of this to worship? Let us be a church filled with worshipers that love you, their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name.